Hello and welcome to Supers on Screen, the superhero movie podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Roth, and today we're going to be talking about the 2008 Marvel Studios picture, Iron Man, starring Robert Downey Jr., Terrence Howard, Jeff Bridges, Gwyneth Paltrow, and the voice of Paul Bettany. It is directed by John Favreau. My guests today are Dead Shirt contributors Ian Nguyen. Hello. And Joe Stando. Hi. <laughs> so... Or I have to imagine that anybody who is listening to Supers on Screen has seen Iron Man as it is the <laughs> sort of the one of the two seminal superhero movies of the last decade, along with Dark Knight, which came out the same summer. But in mm-hmm. case you haven't, Iron Man is uh, the story of <clears throat> when amoral genius billionaire playboy arms dealer Tony Stark is kidnapped by terrorists, he learns that his weapons are falling into the wrong hands. He builds an advanced suit of armor to escape captivity and then dedicates himself to protecting the people who he's put in harm's way, fighting against terrorists and his corrupt mentor. I guess I wanted to start, as I usually do, by asking each of you how you first encountered Iron Man the character and Iron Man the movie. I'm going to start with Ian. What is your Iron Man history? Well, I've got no real background in comics, really. I don't read any comics regularly uh, or anything like that. I do have a friend of mine who uh, subscribes to the big two, and I get most of the news and stuff like that, all those character developments from him. Um, and so I guess this came out in, what, 2008, was that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so at that point, he was really getting into the comic nerddom, and the movies were coming out, and you know he would tell me about this and that, what to be excited for, what not to be excited for. But Iron Man was definitely one that, when the trailer came out, I mean, I like myself a good action movie as much as anyone else, so it was a good trailer. And he said Iron Man was an interesting character, and then we went to see it, and we liked it a lot. Joe, what's your Marvel Iron Man uh, history? Uh, well... Back around then, that was probably, that would have been right after my uh, freshman year in college, and that was kind of when I was getting back into comics. Um, Civil War had just happened, and so I was following a lot of event books like that, but I wasn't, I had read some of Warren Ellis' run on there with the uh, extremist stuff, but I hadn't gone back and reread any kind of origin stuff, I just kind of had a vague idea of that. So I knew the character, but I didn't. You know, I knew he had been captured and such. You know, I knew the the rough plot beats, but I didn't know a ton about it. Um, So then I saw the movie. um, I think it probably would have been with uh, my roommate and uh, some other folks that summer or the spring, whenever it came out. And uh, I remember I loved it. I was I I still have watched it uh, a couple times over the years. I'm a big I'm a big fan of this movie. For me, uh, Iron Man was sort of one of the things that converted me to Marvel after a decade of like really serious DC loyalism loyalism loyalty <laughs> after years of after years of serious loyalty to DC um Marvel Studios stuff has really been a lot of what has made me more of a Marvel fan than a DC fan not just in the licensed products but in the comics themselves but Iron Man being even then sort of considered a, a B-list character for Marvel, which is kind of hilarious to think about, that nobody yeah. had heard of this guy before this movie <laughs> came out. Uh, I think the only Iron Man books that I had read would be not specifically Iron Man books, would be like uh, Civil War and the Ultimates and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch the animated series. Um, 
I really had very little experience with the character until now. And I think that's the story of a lot of people, except for really diehard <laughs> Marvels. Up until this point, you could be a Marvel Comics fan even. You read what the, what, what the bigger books would have been then, like, like X-Men and Spider-Man. Who have, X-Men, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four was bigger back then, I feel like. Yeah, they've all become smaller, and sort of as a result <laughs> of this movie and the success of, of Marvel Studios, because now Marvel wants to be more, mm-hmm. use their synergy better, and really wants to put the characters to whom they still have the movie and TV rights really at the forefront. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this movie sort of changed everything for comic <laughs> book movies and for the comic book business. Here's the first example of... The comic book creators, the studio, is the same company as the company that makes Mm -hmm. the comics. And instead of having to satisfy a larger company like Warner Brothers or licensing out to somebody like Fox and Columbia, they really get to make the comic book on screen. Mm -hmm. And, man, the empire that they've built on the backs of this independent film, they they had to borrow money to make it. Uh, so, as producer Kevin Feige and director John Favreau like to say all the time, Iron Man's an indie, uh, and it feels it at times. Ah, oh, man, what a mm-hmm. what a delight, and what a crazy weird ride this movie is. Uh, I'd like to talk about begin by talking about the the most obvious reason why this movie succeeds, and that is Robert Downey Jr. as Tony. Stark. Oh yeah, oh no, definitely funny. agree. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah, it's funny because like. Like I said, I was kind of reading the comics beforehand, um, and it was it was Warren Ellis who did a really good run on it. That kind of helped to build where the character was at when they were going into the movie in terms of like, I guess just the sort of milit like I don't know about military, but military contractor vibe and that kind of thing was focused on. But then when you read the comics after this movie, it's a total change. Like I love Matt Fraction's run on it, but Matt Fraction is very clearly writing him as. Robert Downey Jr.'s portrayal, no question. I think what they've done here, which I don't think had ever really been done in a, in a super, superhero movie before, or maybe even since, is that they've created sort of a new James Bond-type character, where he's mm-hmm. this this sort of... I mean, he's more fun than Bond, he's less stern, but he is like this cocky action hero that's like this real 20th century male power fantasy and includes mm-hmm. all the icky that comes with that. Um, he's, he's kind of, he's kind of a skis bag at the beginning of this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but he has an, but unlike James Bond, for instance, he has an arc where he has to get better over time and has to learn to be less amoral and better to people (laughs) in his life and take responsibility for himself, which I think that maybe the Daniel Craig James Bond has gotten to do, but for the most part, uh, in the history of the character, he changes very little. And it's fun to look back at this first Iron Man movie and to see how much Tony Stark has grown from Iron Man. Just how, yeah, just just how bad he was kind of in this movie. Just he's kind of yeah, he's sleazy in the way he treats women. He's just really, it's not you know again, it's not until he's directly affected by the amoral way his company does business that he changes. It's like there's no altruism there. It's all about him, even in this movie. I mean, I was actually surprised, like just. Uh, seeing how strong of a character, um, like this throwaway character almost, basically, uh, Yinsen is the man who saves him um, from mm-hmm. death. Like, seeing that play out, like, it's a very simple dynamic between the two, just, you know, like a man and the man who saved him. But it really gives Tony Stark that that uh, that 
first moment where he has to be thankful for someone to someone for mm-hmm. doing something for him where he's mm-hmm. never done something for them and yeah it's yeah it's a it's a testament to how efficiently written the movie is that each of those like their early scenes just play out so well and so summarized in a way without too much emotion like and then that just translates to his interactions with every other character in his life um after that point mm-hmm. I, I think he's really a foil yeah i think it's interesting and i don't know that i noticed this before this time watching and taking notes tony does not ask yinsen's name until they've known each other for at least a day <laughs> <laughs> yes it's true he doesn't ask him what his name is until they're starting to be like let's build a weird suit of armor together <laughs> and he's been in this cave i mean the dude just the dude introduces himself being like oh hey i did surgery on you and saved your life and <laughs> it he's takes like, him, cool, like whatever. a day <laughs> but that's like the beginning of his transformation I, I love the way that they established Tony in the beginning of this movie um, according to John Favreau's uh, Nerdist episode um, the, the decision to start the movie in, at the Humvees and mm. where Tony's attacked and then flash back from there to establish what he's like before the attack was like a last minute decision that made the movie come together and oh, you yeah? can totally see why because I have in my spare time <clears throat> cut this and all the other Avengers movies into chronological order, and I can tell you <laughs> that Tony's Tony's established way better by just this scene. Before you see his face, you see a drink in his hand, and he's goofing off with these soldiers. He's incapable of being serious, but you see him in peril, and it helps you to sympathize with him when you flash back and see him just be a douche to everybody, to his, <laughs> his best friend's his best friend who introduces him as his great mentor on a stage is supposed to present him an award and he does not show up. <laughs> this is his best friend. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's nice that you know, like, well, I can't hate this guy because he's about to get blown up. Like, I have to at least, I don't want to be, like, relishing in this. So maybe I should give him a chance. Yeah, I like the In Many Res hook at the beginning. Like, it's it's very simple, but it works so well. Like, you get, you are charmed by him in what's basically a vacuum mm-hmm. of just him having a great time talking with these soldiers and, you know, having his witty one-liners here and there. And yeah, yeah, snapping his fingers and all that. Um, <laughs> and then you see him put in peril and you, uh, you know, you're, you're charmed by him already. You see him as a protagonist. And mm-hmm. then you get a little bit of that true character introduction at the beginning those hours before that event and yeah it just then just makes you really wonder a bit like hmm well maybe i don't really like this guy that much sort of thing but it it puts that back or like that little foundation of getting the protagonist ready in the right way for this movie that makes robert downey jr's uh you can see why people like him yeah 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 you could definitely see it when he has that encounter with the reporter christine everhart Mm-hmm. And he's being such an asshole to her, but his and maybe this is sort of part of the unrealistic male power fantasy of it that he is totally dismissive of all of her arguments and really just a, a an amoral douchebag. And she apparently is so into it that she gets on probably a plane with him from Las <laughs> Vegas back to Malibu, and they have crazy giggly sex. After which he vanishes. <laughs> And the very first thing we see Pepper Potts do is slut shame her. 
yeah, that was that was good. I like that. That she makes the ta- she makes the taking out the trash joke and everything, and it's just like, oh, gee. <laughs> but it really seems like you know, and Tony does this all the time. We the next thing that he says, you know, uh, Pepper comes down the stairs to see him working on his car or whatever, and he says, "How'd she take it?" She says, "Like a champ." So this is <laughs> this is what he does. This is yeah, his that's... entire life. <laughs> and we do see that improve steadily over time. He gets to appreciate the real relationships that he has in his life. Um, you know, he, he, he ends up, uh, <clears throat> spoilers for future movies, um, getting <laughs> ah. together with uh, with Pepper and, you know, really really doesn't even seem to struggle that much at maintaining the whole monogamy thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of like that, actually. I mean, it, this is kind of straying a little bit, but I like that they don't do any kind of a like a, oh maybe he's gonna cheat kind of a plot or anything it seems like once he that's not his problem his problem is like not really a a lust thing as much as just learning not to be selfish which I think is cool then that's one of the things that when I was putting together the um the summary for the for the movie uh, I borrowed from his his uh, description that he uses for himself in Avengers which is which is a genius babe a genius uh, billionaire playboy th- philanthropist. <laughs> but I didn't include philanthropist because even though he talks about um, making intelligent crops and making like better think better like medical equipment and whatever, that's not his stock and trade. I don't think he really would ever define himself as a philanthropist until after he shuts down the weapons facilities and really starts to think about people. Mm-hmm. Oh so, yeah, exactly. And just um, the. The Tony who's in Iron Man 3 and is, like, hanging out with that kid in that small town and is sort of nice to him, but still <laughs> in his sort of douchebaggy way that we enjoy, mm-hmm. uh, he would be so much more awful to that child uh, the oh, version yeah. that we see here. Exactly. He would not be able to put up with Captain America for five seconds <laughs> or work as part of a team in any way. Mm-hmm. But the transformation is very slow. I mean, it's really very natural. There's some sort of slip-ups in Iron Man 2 where he sort of reverts to being this douchebag because he thinks he's dying. Mm-hmm. But I think that his arc, despite how sort of dramatic it is, feels very natural over the course of not only these two hours, but the total of like eight hours that we get to know his character so far. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely he's definitely the foundation of the Marvel Cinematic Universe so far, and it'll be interesting to see as they go forward, um, especially, you know, depending on how many more movies Robert Downey Jr. is going to be in, whether we're going to see kind of some kind of a sacrifice that wraps that up or what. But I do think that, yeah, it is definitely like it's, it's, the movies are all the characters' story, but they're especially Tony Stark's story, which is cool. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I think natural is, um, you know, it's certainly, like, a good word to describe what happens to Tony Stark's character in uh, the first movie. Uh, Like, it very much, um, the comedic touches, those witticisms, he's a lot nicer and more um, cooperative with his repartee, like, after he comes back from uh, being captured. Like, he has (laughs) fun. He, like, really has a lot more fun being uh, interacting with the people who to whom he owes his life uh, up to this point, say be it uh, Rhodey or Potts, um, instead of just you know seeing them as pieces to be listened to sometimes and ignored at other times. Um, mm-hmm. 
there there are some dramatic uh, mishaps i think where <laughs> like any any line where he has to say he says something along the to the effect of um, i now know what i have to do he <laughs> like comes off a little born again christian cuz those <laughs> lines come very often which is yeah, a little annoying say, he says it a lot <laughs> yeah uh well, there are four writers, so what can you expect <laughs> in the end? Could happen, and that's not yeah. even counting all the improvisation that apparently went on, went on on the set. Apparently, uh, of all existing superhero movies, this is the one where the actors got to riff the most, and it's mostly to the film's benefit. But for sure, there's gonna be not that I'm suggesting that Robert Downey Jr. improved. I now know what I have to do. I have to protect <laughs> the people who I put in harm's way because that is clearly a a written. Let's put that in the trailer line. Yeah. <laughs> but but it does add to the sort of sort of chaos of the the writing and specifically the dialogue that I think yeah. mostly oh, yeah. I like the crosstalk between the characters that's something that's really really unusual for this kind of movie. Mhm. Oh yeah, the repartee is exceptionally strong. It's very fun to listen to. It really never gets old because there's a lot of well-directed chemistry between all these actors. Um and yeah, despite all these uh potentially, you know, overreaching dramatic lines. Uh, the fact that Tony gets all of these just scenes with the other characters um, makes sells his change uh, despite, uh, let, me, let me say, uh, um, effectively sells his change to becoming a better person anyway. Mm-hmm. One of the people um, who with whom his relationship changes the most would be Pepper Potts, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. And I noticed something about her character for the first time today that I, I think is is interesting, is that like everyone else in this movie, she is A-OKA with the whole arms dealer thing. That is her job, <laughs> is that she's the person that listens to an arms dealer. And when he and when Tony decides I'm not gonna make guns anymore, she is as put off as anybody. And there's a scene where Tony says, you were okay with all of this horrible shit that I used to do, and you have a problem with me being Iron Man, and that kind of turns her around a little bit. And that's something that I, I hadn't really noticed before. Yeah, that that is kind of odd, because you do think of her, and especially as the series goes on, she seems somewhat, you know, like she doesn't want to get too into you know, this weird sort of tech stuff that they are doing, especially in the third one. And, yeah, looking back, it was kind of surprising. I mean, I read it less as she's really into military stuff as much as she knew this was her job. You know, she knows yeah. what these people do. It's like, I think it kind of speaks to how kind of self-absorbed Tony is that, you know, other people, even if they don't like it, they've made peace with it, but he just hasn't even really thought about the fact that his company makes bombs and they shoot them at people. Yeah, like she's not a like she's not like a gung ho diehard person. But you would you would think, looking at her character uh, from the perspective of four movies, you would really think of her as being less of a into violence type person. And not that she does yeah. the violence herself, but she's a party to it. Like she profits from exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Pepper is a character who is, I think, I think, really pretty interesting in the way that she's very self-aware and she's very aware of who she works for and mm-hmm. and what it means to be around this person. <laughs> and Gwyneth Paltrow is just fantastic at, at selling the, com- the, the complexity of the character. 
yeah, there's like a there's kind of a resignation to it that it's like, well, this guy, I mean, he is the way that he is, and I don't think you know, I don't think any of the other characters would have expected him to become Iron Man or anything, obviously. But they definitely expect that. Well, now he's gonna have this person over. Now he's gonna go blow off this thing, and we kind of have to roll with the punches. And I think it's kind of funny that yeah, that like he says that becoming a superhero is what pushes it too far and everything. It's interesting uh, in seeing Tony come back from his his months of uh, captivity and you know have this big life change and have some people you know end up dismissing that. Um, but he keeps on pushing it, and he gives the most trusted characters that he, the most trusted people he has in his life, um, these moments where they see him doing this thing, or he introduces the idea of him changing as a person um, and gauging their reactions. Like uh, he, he, of course, gives Pepper Potts that uh, like kind of ultimatum about. Um, how she stood by him when he dealt in death, but now when he's trying to help people and then just seeing what that gets out of her. And also like before that, just um, talking with, for instance, Rhodey in the uh, meeting him after his briefing and telling him that he wants to do something different outside of the military. And he gets shot down immediately, stuff like that. Just seeing him try and find his way back to these people that he's treated in this one way for his entire life and just seeing him learn how to meet these people again and as a new person is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that brings us, I guess, to Rhodey who in this film and this phone in this film only is portrayed by Terrence Howard and Rhodey from the beginning of the movie really comes across as like sort of a wet blanket. Like he Mm -hmm. he really does feel like a babysitter rather than a friend (laughs) of his. I don't think, other than the sort of 10 seconds that we see of the two of them drinking on the plane slash strip club, um, uh-huh. do we really get a yeah. sense that they... I was going to say, yeah, that's yeah. the only time they seem to like each other. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, at least until towards the end of the movie. But mm-hmm. it definitely seems more like like uh, Rhodey is like his, his big brother. Mm-hmm. Who's tries to look out with tries to look out for him despite how badly Tony does not want to be looked after. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I mean, and I like Rhodey in this movie. Um, well, the thing is that I think Terrence Howard did a perfectly fine job. It's just that, as we found out later, Don Cheadle is really, really good, and I feel like has really, really good chemistry with just everybody, and I just. It's weird going back and watching this and being like, oh, this is pretty good, but it would have been cool if it was Don Cheadle from the beginning, too. It's kind of how I felt. I'd kind of like to visit the alternate universe, where either alternate universe, where uh, the first where we had Don Cheadle from day one and the second where Terrence Howard got to continue the role, because I feel like we would have ended up with two very different roadies at the end of the day, or I guess we would have ended up with the same one with Don Cheadle, but... um, They're both tremendous actors, and... Mm -hmm. I have to kind of say that the Don Cheadle Rhodey that we, uh, Don Cheadle's version of Rhodey that we get in two and three feels, it kind of feels like a different character. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. It's especially weird for me in the, cause in the beginning of Iron Man 2, the first time you see Rhodey, he's really upset with Tony that that hearing, and just something about how kind of cold he is to him, uh, you know, how Don Cheadle plays it, 
it like it just makes a disconnect in my mind from it being the same guy we saw in this other movie. You know what I mean? Because he wasn't. I would never describe Terrence Howard as being really cold toward it. You're right. It definitely is kind of like an older brothery sort of long suffering thing. That it just, I, I, yeah, that that change is kind of odd. I kind of think I hadn't thought of it before, but now I'm sort of thinking like the Don Cheadle Rhodey feels more like an old friend than, or even like, like maybe like a school friend, or maybe even like a younger brother to mm-hmm. to Tony. Where like I'm thinking of the scene where in three, where where Rhodey is like, all right, that's cool, suit me up, bring it on. Like, sort of, like, somebody saying, okay, pass me the ball. And, <laughs> and like, and that's just part of just Don Cheadle just being enormously cute. But it, <laughs> I can't really see that same thing in the character that we have in one, whether it has to do with the way the character has evolved and changed, or has to do with the change of actor or the change of writers. But I kind of see Terrence Howard's roadie rolling his eyes at Tony a lot more. Not to say yeah. that the not to say that the character doesn't still do it later on, but Rhodey's whole thing is come on, this is the real world, uh, especially mm-hmm. in the first one, and it's, it's it would have been interesting to see that through line continue. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think it was, I don't think I wouldn't say that he was miscast. Um, I like Don Cheadle's take on it, uh, maybe more just because I've seen two movies of it. But yeah, I would. It would be interesting to see both other options. But Rhodey is sort of a connection that the movie has to this sort of real-world military thing. Um, this is the first movie of this genre to, like, go to Afghanistan and deal with, like, hey, terrorism is a thing. <laughs> this is a 21st century problem, and it is a world-scale problem. And Rhodey represents the conventional military type guy or philosophy, whereas Tony is, I guess, sort of wish fulfillment for American audiences who kind of just want to see, like that that sequence where um, where Tony goes to the Gomera province and um, that province, so it's a Gomera that that village, yeah, and and just kicks everybody's ass and just and just like saves everybody who was in danger by this bullying band. I mean- and he's quipping, and he's walking away from explosions. <laughs> it, yeah, it's yeah. like a music video. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It reminded me of that classic, uh, like one-page comic that DC put out, where Superman just like jumps, just just leaps around, grabs Hitler and Mussolini, and throws them in a room where they have to sign a peace <laughs> treaty. Like I, it is the same thing. It's just like, wouldn't it be great if somebody could just go over there and just kick, like you know, like Al Qaeda's ass or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then it was just done. Like boom, there you go. It's over. It's that. It's that same kind of feeling, but a hundred, like you know, eighty years later or what, uh, seventy years later. Time period. A gen- generations have passed. But I feel like it's the same kind of like almost like propaganda type thing. Oh yeah, yeah. It's definitely Definitely. Of doing propaganda without it being like too. Like if you have Captain America doing that, then people are like, well, it's like a metaphor for the military. And this is like, well, it's a metaphor for like a badass dude. It's awesome. Oh, it's like amazing how much that sort of that sort of um, ideological or like wish fulfillment thing has changed between Iron Man and Captain America: The Winter Soldier, because Iron Man is a story oh, yeah. that involves, oh, yeah. hey, here's a lone American 
going overseas to to kick ass unilaterally and not worry about the long-term political consequences and winter soldier is all about the hey we can't just do that (laughs) (laughs) yeah i didn't even think about that until now but that's definitely like a critique of like this movie and that kind of idea that's interesting because like during that time like i can't imagine many superhero movies being pitched where it wasn't just you know like let's have black let's have white uh very obviously you know the other big movie that summer changed a few of those things around uh and then set a new side like parallel formula for superhero movies for the years to come but very much iron man one stays uh very tonally light and it does so very successfully like it it does make sure that it's got these you know little wiggle room around like for instance this um enemy faction is you know it's mentioned it's all just mercenaries who are super evil and they're all in it for the money and the weapons like there's really no guilt to be had there's no destabilizing effect that happens when you get rid of them because all they're doing is attacking civilians like you just go in and clean everything up and it's nice and it's kind of uh just Mm, it's exhilarating to see with no guilt attached because the movie makes it in such a way that uh, you don't need any guilt attached. It's interesting. It's notable that we're never told what the Ten Rings wants. What is their deal? We don't know. (laughs) They just shoot people and kidnap things and blow things up. And we don't know, like, are they they religiously motivated? They don't seem to be. Um, Are they... um, I think that's an excellent choice because I I don't want to see that simplified into a yeah, action I, movie mm-hmm. yeah but, i don't want to see it as a metaphor for any current conflict as much as just kind of uh terrorists are bad we hate it when they blow people up let's let's make a story about that so well, the main yeah i'm sorry go uh, on. uh well the main guy did mention he mentions twice that uh he compares himself to uh genghis khan twice and so he's got that very antiquated conqueror sort of uh i like mentality and that's very easy to paint away as just a villain, which is nice. Like, you know, you don't have to bring in, like, for this sort of movie, they did, they definitely made the right choice of not bringing in something very complicated and something very messy, because then that would definitely have made um, the thrill of the this sequence, you know, very much muddier. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, this guy is just trying to take over Asia, take over the world. Like, you know, he's just... Just Another like you do. cookie cutter villain, so it's it's good <laughs> to see him fall down. It's it's easy to see him taken down, and it's fun. Well, let's talk about Raza, the terrorist leader played by Ferran Tahir, whose name we never hear in the movie. <laughs> uh, I just called him Scary Bald Guy until I looked up the name of the character in the uh, IMDb page. Um, he is. I, I I know there were many revisions made to this movie during the making of the movie. But I think he was intended to sort of be um, a version of the Marvel of the Iron Man comics villain, the Mandarin, which is about which would explain his obsession with like a Genghis Khan, an ancient conqueror, and the fact that his gang is called the Ten Rings. Oh, I see. That's a okay. And All that right. he was Come. gonna be the final big bad of the movie before they kind of revised it to have him get sort of pushed to the side and maybe killed, and Obi would become the major, mm-hmm. the main villain. Which is, you know, seem to work out fine. Yeah, but he's—he doesn't even get a name in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember reading. Uh, reading, I think John Favreau said that they didn't want to 
you know, at least when he was working on the series, they didn't want to do the Mandarin as, like, a literal character, because they're like, well, the way that it's written in the comics, it's kind of racist, and it's just, like, it's also kind of, it was kind of also kind of too magical for what, you know, because, I mean, that movie laid the foundations for the universe. There's no magic or Asgard or anything in that movie, and I think that would have pushed it too far. But I do like, you know, the the, way, the alternate take they did in um, in Iron Man 3, but yeah, you're right, that does definitely... The final cut definitely sells that guy short a little bit. We may see him again, though. We don't see him die. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if either of you have watched the the King is Dead short film. Oh, yeah, yeah, Long yeah. The, I'm sorry, Long Live the King short film. Uh-huh. Uh, that implies that there is a real Mandarin out there other than the character that we're introduced to in Iron Man 3. I'm going to keep that vague in case anybody here who hasn't seen the movie is listening. Mm-hmm. But we may yet see Raza come back and that would be I a cool would be way to do it yeah mm-hmm. but you know he's an actor I like he plays a, a, a Captain uh, Captain Robau again another character whose name you never hear on screen uh, <laughs> in the beginning of the Star Trek reboot movie oh uh, yeah yeah I think oh, he, yeah, that's true I think yeah. he showed up in the um, if I, I can't remember if it was him I think it was him who shows up in um, uh, fucking uh, crisis that short-lived NBC show that was pretty good. Oh yeah, yeah. He's you know he's a, he's a he's a real good actor and I, I like to to see him do stuff. So it'd be cool to have him come back in another mm-hmm. movie and yet the you know revenge of the Mandarin whose beef yeah, is I'll now put... with Ben Kingsley. Yeah, <laughs> no, that would be fun. But the real villain of this film is <laughs> is the dude Jeff Bridges as <laughs> Ironmonger Obadiah Stane just rotten arms dealer bastard and this this was the movie that kind of like started i mean it's not that his career was like gone or anything but i feel like this was right around when he started coming back because it was like he did this and then was it crazy heart was like right after and then Mm -hmm. they made a tron too and then you know now he was in now he's in everything and stuff but like this was this was really the first time i remember seeing him you know, as kind of an adult that I was cognizant enough to be like, oh, this guy's career is kind of coming back. But I thought that was cool. He's an, he's interesting because I know that he took the role under the condition that he could shave his head, which is an <laughs> interesting condition to make. <laughs> it, it's hard just because it's a movie that if you like it, you've seen it 45 times. Anytime Jeff Bridges is on screen, it's really hard not to see and hear the dude. And even though he is a bald, bearded man in a suit, slash giant metal suit um some there are certain things that he'll say he'll be like oh tony don't worry about it i brought some pizza yeah, well, back from los angeles from new york and it's like oh there he is it's the dude whenever he's, whenever he's like hugging tony and being nice to him he, he definitely like the dude is coming out of him oh, far out man <laughs> anytime he tries to sell me a, a what a mazda i guess for me it's whenever he makes that like very like flat closed mouth smile of his sort of thing <laughs> like that expression is always due to me like just looking at walter and just not incredulous kind of thing yeah. he's a character who i mean you don't find out that he's the baddie until about i mean only like an hour and a half into the movie and he's sort of playing yeah, the mentor character and yeah i mean i liked that a lot because i remember the first time i was watching it you kind of know he's like a douchebag and you could tell that it's like oh he's behind these you know he's kind of the guy for these under you know under the table deals but 
yeah, I, I remember not necessarily being super surprised by the reveal that he was the villain, but like, you know, at least a little bit thrown because you're right. It's those kind of like, he does have that kind of chumminess of the dude to him. So I remember when he, you know, when he shows up with the, uh, the paralyzer thing and everything, it was a little, it was a little intense. Yeah. However, if you happen to speak Urdu, <laughs> you know from the first minute of the movie that he's the bad guy, and you have a totally <laughs> different experience. Because the video in the good. beginning of the movie that we get translated later by Stark's unbelievably amazing translation translation computer yeah but like does it the in the first voice too. <laughs> it even, yeah that's very wonderful it tries to replicate <laughs> the guy's voice and everything but yeah if you if you happen to be speaking if we happen to be someone who speaks urdu at the beginning of this movie you you know how you know how it all plays out from the very beginning and i know they probably figure that not only do most people in the american audience not speak urdu that they would not recognize the language or not or even you know have any context for it without looking it up on imdb like i did so (laughs) but that's actually funny about that it would be you would get the reveal of that before you actually meet obadiah stan at all right (laughs) who kill who what yeah and then he meets obadiah and you'd be like why is he talking to him why is he trusting this (laughs) (laughs) oh wait no it's his friend (laughs) A lot of people will complain that the that the final confrontation with with uh, Stain is where the movie kind of starts to fall apart, and I don't know if I totally agree with that, but there's definitely a problem in that Jeff Bridges sounds fucking ridiculous <laughs> when he's in the armor. Being, How ironic, Tony! And it's just it's like it's like he got drunk before doing it, and then was just indulging his like villain tendencies. <laughs> Well, everyone likes to play the villain is the most fun part to do. But, like, he he goes from being a fairly, like, sort of, like, subdued film acting type yeah. character to complete yeah. fucking ham. And it takes him, like, he's, he's, like, sinister and creepy in the scene where he's, like, taking the arc reactor out of Tony's heart. Oh, yeah. But the next time you see him, he's, like, he's, like... <gasps> And trying to st- I'm deeply enjoying the armor. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a sign of just like I'll de- I'll definitely just go out on them and say it in that I don't really think Obadiah Stane as the character in this movie can handle being the main antagonist. And I think <laughs> that when that switch happens, things get a little muddy. Uh, Obadiah Stane doesn't quite have the clear motivation that makes him want to, you know, start stealing all this crazy technology from Tony, try to kill Tony, like, and because he's got several lines that are, you know, put into the action scenes as little zingers to give him that, like, these little shots of character development uh, after the fact, but Mm -hmm. they're all ranging from jealousy to true ownership of the company mm-hmm. to I'm a weapons, like I'm a true warmonger and they're a little all over the place. Um, <laughs> and in the end, like none of that also justifies how he asked for someone to kill, kidnap and kill Tony Stark in the first place in the Middle East like that. It, it doesn't quite line up. Like I yeah, love it. It doesn't, it doesn't, you're right. It doesn't jive. Yeah. And it's just weird. Cause it's, yeah, it's kind of like he becomes a different character because like, what is he, he's going to ostensibly kill Pepper and kill these 
government agent. Yeah, then what? And then and then just cover <laughs> it up. I mean, I guess he can. I guess he's pretty. He's pretty sinister because he can, you know, make under the table deals and stuff. But this is this is just murdering federal agents in a huge robot suit on American soil. Like, what is <laughs> what is the next step? Is he going to? Because the dude's talking about how you could conquer. Is that what he's going to do now? Is he going to fly out and start just? Becoming a megalomaniac or something? Yeah. It's sort of weird. And how is he going to do it with one fucking arc reactor? <laughs> I, mean, I guess he can reverse it's... engineer the one that he got. But, yeah, but, but like, it doesn't even seem like he can. It's literally... Like, that's one of the things that's like... I mean, I, I love it in the movie. And especially, you know, in the second one, the way it's like... Oh, yeah, he invents this thing in a basement and everything. But this <laughs> idea that, that Tony Stark is... That he's able to just... It's not even like he invented something. It's like he's magic. And he can just make things. Like, it's just magical skills that he like does, where he just makes things small from his memory. Um, so yeah, I don't really know what Obadiah's plan is in terms of murdering him, because it's like he said, he's killing the golden goose. But um, but it's a fun scene. Like he's a fun villain at the end. Like I definitely, I definitely love his um, his box of scraps line and his whole silly little prick and all that. Yeah. Like. Yeah. It's very fun, but it is definitely, like, he sort of... Maybe he got bashed on the head when he was getting into the Ironmonger suit or something. Like, I don't know. Like, I'll definitely say that the criticism comes after the fact. Like, I think the structure of this movie as a superhero movie is one of the best. And oh, yeah. Just, yeah. And watching Obadiah Stane, like, just become the villain, like, Jeff Bridges becoming the villain, and then, you know, puts a voice <laughs> modulator in his suit, and puts rockets everywhere, and, and you know, it, it's fun. It really is fun. And in a way, it's interesting watching this movie, too, especially in terms of uh, that final action scene. Um, after all the years of superhero movies we've had now, just seeing how relatively small scale this one is, honestly... <laughs> They get onto one section of bridge, throw a few cars around, and then take it off to the factory. And then that's, you know, that's the action scene. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was, I was kind of surprised at, like, comparatively how subdued this movie is in terms of, you know, there's really only... The villains are just terrorists with guns until the very end when there's another guy for him to fight. As opposed to, you know, like, I'm thinking of something like Thor 2 or something where there's just all of these guys with laser guns and you know, spaceships and stuff showing up pretty much from the very beginning. And it's just strange to think about that back then, this was kind of like, this. they were pushing the envelope with that, with Iron Man, you know, <laughs> the, just selling people this character at all. Where, you know, whereas now, if there aren't, you know, four different superheroes and, you know, three or four villains in every movie, you know, it's like people feel like they didn't get their money's worth. Yeah, it's interesting to see because, like, I definitely believe that, like, the Iron Man 1 formula is, you know, still being used, still being refined. But that Dark Knight formula is also a parallel one that has affected, you know, a lot of superhero movies a lot, too. Like, mm -hmm. that's, like, if they can do multiple villains effectively, or at least think that they can, they will try to, for instance. Yeah, seems oh, yeah, it. yeah, no question. Since 2008, there have been two kinds of superhero movies. And it's easy to say, you know, there, there, there are Iron Man movies and there are Dark Knight movies. And really that, I guess, really breaks down to Marvel movies and DC movies. Um, but not even just that, because some of the Marvel-licensed movies still like to go the Dark Knight route. I would argue oh, yeah. Days, of Future's pa Days of Future Past is more of a Dark Knight movie than it is an Iron Man movie, because it's just so bleak. 
and there's mm-hmm. so much complexity to it. Whereas <laughs> Iron Man and Marvel Studios movies tend to be, I mean, I mean, maybe not universally, but they tend to be more straightforward. They tend to be more fun and less about trying to mind fuck you <laughs> and just being like, yeah, they're they're not really. Like, I feel like movies, DC movies especially, but then also some, you know, like even the Wolverine or something, they're like statements. It's sort of like a character, we have to come up with a new sort of philosophical take on this character. Whereas, like, the the Marvel Avengers line movies are more just, oh, look, it's like so-and-so on screen. Oh, look, it's Dr. Zola. Oh, look, it's Malekith the Accursed. It's like, oh, this is fun. Have a good time, yeah. Yeah, and and I don't think either one is necessarily better or worse, but you're right. It's interesting to see those two formulas kind of switching back and forth and what's what people are using. It's I guess I can think of these two movies as sort of being like Raging Bull versus the Depadded. Um, <laughs> it's like Ra- Raging Bull is unquestionably a better film by Martin Scorsese than the Depadded is, and I can only say mm-hmm. it like that. I'm sorry, but I am <laughs> not going to watch Raging Bull again. Maybe ever, because oh, yeah. it's heavy and it's like it's it's uh, it just doesn't feel good to watch it. It's it's clearly a great film, but it is not pleasant. I don't have a good time necessarily, and so even though the Departed is a more is like um is like a more blockbustery like more I don't want to say simple because there's all kinds of twists and turns happening in that movie, but it is uh, a more it's more of a lively. Was that? Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's it's more yeah. it's more fun. It's more lively. I will watch that movie twice a year. Accessible is a fine word for it. I think you're yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, yeah, you're you're right. The Dark Knight is more when you're watching it. You're kind of yeah. It is like you're taking notes and you're unpacking it and stuff. And Iron Man, you don't really have to unpack as much, which I think is you know it's nice. It's fun too. It's like how many times? And again, we'll do the Dark Knight. Like way later in the podcast, you everybody. Sorry, listeners, we will not get to Nolan <laughs> movies until we have done every other Batman movie up to it. But um, how many times did you have to watch The Dark Knight before you really got what the Joker's before, deal? Before was? you understood even half the plans that were going yeah. on. Yeah, you know these people. Just like I, I had no idea what the Rico Act was when I first saw that movie. It wasn't until I took like social classes later. <laughs> so they're like, "Yeah, we got to get him on a Rico," and I was just like, uh, "Okay, I don't. What does that mean?" This movie, you don't. I mean, you can have a couple questions, being like, "Oh, well, what what was Stain trying to accomplish?" Because it really isn't clear, even after multiple viewings. But you uh-huh. don't go back and question people's motivations five or six times, trying to decide yeah. whether or not Raza is really an anarchist, right? <laughs> um, no, everybody wears their hearts on their sleeves in this movie, for the most part, for better or for worse. <laughs> I'll tell you one, and the fun factor is just what makes this movie just so much. I'm about to say the fun factor is what makes this movie so much fun. Uh, but it's <laughs> I mean, light. you can. You yeah. can just dedicate the rest of the podcast to you keep on repeating yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> the Dark Knight is a is a crime story, a detective story, and a character drama. The and Iron Man and the Marvel movies in general are fun adventure films. And Iron Man is such a wild, fun ride. It's the every, you root you root for this asshole way more than you root for even like Peter Parker is a pretty okay guy, but mm-hmm. the Spider-Man movies are not nearly as good at making you enjoy his adventure. No, yeah, this you know it's because this movie it has there's a whole set piece you know when he makes the first the Mark II armor that's just him flying around and then you know freezing up and having to kick it back on and he does and there's no villain there there's no anything but that's like 
as good a scene of a character having fun being a superhero as I feel like we've gotten in any Spider-Man or any Superman movie or anything. It's definitely, it's a character enjoying being a hero, which you're not going to get out of a Batman movie, for example. (laughs) I think it all does really come back to that uh, first hook where you see Tony Stark in that home thing, just talking with all soldiers. Like you, like unlike a lot of other origin stories, you know, where the character's personality changes greatly uh, when they take on the mantle of the hero. Uh, Tony Stark starts off very clever, very witty, just for the get-go. And you like him a lot, and then you learn to hate to like him a lot. (laughs) And then, like, what's great is, yeah, he just becomes this guy that you like to like a lot in the end. Like, his, his ideology changes, but he as a person is just so fun. Like, as a character, he's so fun to follow just throughout the entire movie. And I think that's one of the reasons why this movie just stands out, um, especially among origin stories, which, you know, we'll never stop getting. But um, Iron Man 1 is a very, very strong origin story. I think you hit on something important there, which is that Tony Stark is Tony Stark all the time, whether he's in the suit or not. And he is 100% Tony Stark at all times, and he reserves himself (laughs) for no one, which really is what makes that twist ending that nobody saw coming really satisfying, which is at the last minute, he decides, fuck it. (laughs) Why wouldn't I tell you I'm Iron Man? It fucking rules. Every other Uh part of my life is on the public display, and I wear it on my sleeve. How could I possibly hide this, and why would I bother? Yeah, no, that was, it's a really fun ending, and it's weird, too, because, you know, especially back then, we didn't really know what was coming, either. You know, you get the Nick Fury bit at the end, and it's like, oh, Avengers, but we were just kind of like, well, what does that even mean? I mean, I know they're making a Hulk movie. Is that going to be a thing and stuff? So I get, it was just definitely a way, you know, because Spider-Man movies, I feel like, always end kind of the same way. As much as, you know, I've enjoyed all of them, it's very like, oh, I got to have this burden and everything. And then this was just like, oh, nope, this way that, you know, this status quo that we seem to be setting up, you know, for future films, we're just going to throw it out the window. It's interesting. It adds a new sort of fun. It added a new sort of fun to the way we think about superheroes for sure. Because, I mean, definitely as someone who came into this whole like comic books movie trend as an outsider, way outsider, still an outsider, I'd say. But you know, I get some of that trickling down to me as I see more of these movies. But like you know, we're we mostly thought of a few big heroes before then if you were outside of the comic books loop and that idea of the keeping your identity hidden and living with that as your dark secret and sort of you know hiding that part of your life just two different lives like that's what i expected coming into a superhero movie i think probably the first one i saw of this whole you know wave of movies um and just seeing that at the end was just that changed everything in a way for me. It's become yeah. very much part of the Marvel oeuvre. Like none of the characters in the Marvel super, in the Marvel Studios movies really have secret identities. I mean, I suppose not everybody knows that Bruce Banner is the Hulk, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and um, Hawkeye and and Black Widow are secret agents, right? But yeah, but other than that, you're right. I was just thinking about that. None of them. You could look them all, you know, you could Google all these people and find out who they were. There's no... Steve <laughs> Rogers has an apartment. Any of them. <laughs> yeah. The, the fucking... S.H.I.E.L.D. picks him up in a car while he's just running around the park. 
Yeah, just like, yeah. hey, with, let's with go to work. strangers around, saying hi to, you know, like, fans and everything. They're definitely... Marvel superheroes are definitely celebrities in the in the movies, to some extent or another. And it's definitely this movie that kicks that off, because Tony Stark was, for one, already a celebrity, but then also just decided to go full tilt with it and make being Iron Man a celebrity feature. <sighs> there is so much more we can talk about with this movie. Um, <laughs> the special effects... This is a six-year-old movie. They hold up tremendously. They do, wonderfully. yeah. Really wonderfully. Um, I don't think uh, there's anything in there that I was like, oh, no, this looks a little a little sketchy or anything, personally. I definitely think that it's uh, telling that it's just very telling that they put in a lot of design work just to make sure that this you know, first foray into the new superhero movie trend really worked. And everything really looks... Right. It really looks like it comes together. Like everything from just, you know, uh the the bits of the suits, just the his uh palatial residence you can say. Um <laughs> to everything to even I, I honestly one of my favorite things when I was rewatching this movie was I really noticed the Stark Industries logo, which is oh, not yeah. it's not a great it's not a, like a grand logo or anything. But it is very much a logo that a company would buy if they wanted to hide the main thing that they do to make money. It's, it's basically the Lockheed Martin logo. It is. It is. Yeah, it's actually yeah, yeah. better than the Lockheed Martin logo because it doesn't <laughs> go for that stupid star. Um, it's just you know that one wing swoosh. But like it's yeah, it's nice and also just like it, it all just comes together and works. And uh, honestly, when that. Um, character basically that character introduction that comes by way of the award ceremony intro like that doesn't look embarrassing at all that looks great and i think that's yeah one of the strongest um like fake news sort of things that oh, yeah. uh, uh, any superhero movie has done for a while honestly yeah that's that's yeah. what i was gonna say is that one thing that i thought is was really good and they've done this throughout all the iron man movies especially is the incorporation of you know magazine covers and i like the you know, the Jim Cramer bit, I mean, I guess that's, and you know... <laughs> yeah. That's the most dated part of the movie by far. They're, they're, they're kind of dated, but I like that it was... They did a pretty firm job of establishing, okay, yes, this is the real world. You know, this is the world that you and I live in, as opposed to, especially when you think of more recent, you know, what other recent movies would have been, uh, you know, sort of like the... Um, uh, the Batman movies. Even Batman Begins, when you go back and watch it, is still sort of got some of that a little bit Burton-y, fantastic stuff to it. And this yeah. was a very, no, this is, this is the, you know, for better or for worse, this is the world. Their pop culture is our pop culture. And I think that they did a really good job with that to sell you on Tony Stark as being a recognizable character, even back then when no one would know who Iron Man was. Nobody in, who isn't a comics reader. Yeah. There's two things that have come up from what you guys are talking about that I, I, I think bears, um, digging into i think one of the reasons why the design work in this movie is so fantastic is that because this is marvel studios and not a movie studio that is in the business of making movies rather than telling superhero stories in comic book form they didn't reinvent the wheel design wise for this the iron man suit that you see in this film is the iron man suit that uh, adi granoff was drawing in the extremis arc of iron man it, it that is the suit it they even this the guy who drew that comic book designed the suit for the movie 
They didn't mm-hmm. say, oh, well, ah, this looks too much like it's in a comic book. And keep in mind, you know, like Iron Man is a costume that, since that redesign, has looked like it's a movie thing anyway. But yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, one of the yeah. easiest to translate, so it's cool they did it first. But they weren't like, how can we make this look like more real and like more for movies? Like the way that like uh, 20th Century Fox says, let's put the X-Men in leather. And, you know, it's uh-huh. you can listen to the first episode of this podcast and hear Dominic Griffin talk about why that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, you can um, and, or be like uh, Warner Brothers is like, well, we don't want Superman to wear red underpants or wear bright colors. Yeah. And in fact, in the 90s, they wanted him to wear black and carry knives. Um, they're, they don't get it. They don't. Marvel Studios didn't have to explain to movie people why the design worked the way it was. They know it's worked yeah. because it has worked for them the whole time, and that philosophy has served them so well throughout all the Marvel Studios movies. They have done so little of of um reinventing the wheel uh captain america's costume looks like captain america's costume thor Mm -hmm. looks like thor uh black widow Mm -hmm. looks like black widow and it all works in the context of the world that they built and it's Mm -hmm. and they didn't have to be like well batman should probably wear black leather which which looks fine (laughs) but you know it's the second guessing they they don't do it right yeah it's definitely yeah this is these are movies that you're watching that have you know curse and these weird you know it has the abomination and it has you know just these weird obscure characters we're gonna get guardians of the galaxy movie (laughs) with a talking raccoon and a tree man and this is like kind of a you know it's it's a little bit left of center for marvel movies but not much and it's just there's definitely this stick into their guns on stuff that i think has like proven really really fruitful for them the other thing from that that we were talking about um, was talking about how this was like a real world. That's something that maybe, and it's not, it's not like, not like totally, doesn't totally break the continuity of the series. But there are there are some things that feel a little bit weird now in the hindsight of the series. Some early installment weirdness, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like nobody has heard of Shield. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it could be that we now know it's been around since the 40s. It could be that they were secret until things like Iron Man and Thor started happening where they just couldn't hide anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's an easy explanation. It's, it's probably the case. Um, but there is an alternate history at work. There were weird oh, laser yeah. guns in World War II, and Captain America was a thing. <laughs> and there are some things you can definitely fold into it, like... Um, when I, I saw the Avengers, you know, many times in theaters, but one of the times mm-hmm. I took my mother, um, <laughs> and she was like, hey, this was cool. We should, I would totally watch the first one of these movies. And so we watched Iron Man, and she's like, oh, the arc reactor, do you think maybe that's powered by the Tesseract? And I'm like, duh, of course that shit comes from the Tesseract. And they, when they made <laughs> oh, yeah. this movie, they had no idea they were going to do something like that, right? This mm-hmm. movie and The Incredible Hulk were both so early in the process for Marvel Studios that they hadn't really decided what they were doing with the whole shared universe until the end of the production of both films, um, which is why Tony Stark and the Stark logo is shoehorned into Incredible Hulk and why um, Nick Fury shows up at the end of this movie. Um, but there's no way they were thinking about that when they made the arc reactor design in the Stark factory. They weren't thinking, well, in 1945 or 1943, um, Howard Stark is going to pick up the Tesseract off the ocean and then design this arc reactor based on it. They hadn't thought that (laughs) far ahead. Who would? Oh, yeah. But... And maybe they thought that later when they designed the the bluish glow of the Tesseract and thought about that stuff. 
but they probably didn't. That's probably something that we put together in our head and just decided that it's real mm. in the world because it's convenient. But, it, you know, it, it, it works. It still works backwards for the most part. You can explain away any of the yeah, weirdness. Th- that's, that's one thing that I think, you know, I'm looking forward to the Agent Carter show, and, you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is good for that, too, that you can kind of, you can kind of sort of restructure some of the earlier plot points into a way that it's like, okay, yeah, this still makes sense, which is sort of a problem. I feel like the X-Men movies are, like, kind of a counterpoint, where if you look at the X-Men movies now, it's a totally, it's a very, very different universe that just happened to resemble ours in, like, one version of the late 90s, early 2000s. But other than that, it was, like, it was this fantasy world. Whereas this is definitely something where, even with sort of the weirdness, even with the way that, you know, they would certainly have different textbook histories of World War II, it still feels real, which I think is cool. Before we wrap things up, uh, fellas, do you want to let our audience know where they can find you and your work online? Like your social media and whatnot? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, you can follow me uh, at, at Joe Stando on Twitter, which is J-O-E-S-D-A-N-D-O, it's my name. And uh, and then, yeah, I, I contributed to Deadshirt mainly in comics, but also branching out to TV and movies a little bit. So um, definitely visit the site. I mean, you should visit the site even if I wasn't writing on it, but since I'm there, it's a bonus. And then my other, uh, the other thing I'm going to plug is uh, sandwichtalk.wordpress.com, spelled <laughs> just like it sounds, mm-hmm. which is my, uh, actually how I got started writing um, ever. It's a blog in which I review and discuss sandwiches from both local and national restaurants. And uh, I haven't updated recently, but there's maybe three or four years of backlog on there. Good God. So I'm, I'm oh. going to, yeah. I'm going to plug that. If you guys like uh, Trashford Files, it's kind of similar. So I was very surprised when I found out that I had kindred spirits in the world. <laughs> um, definitely look up the double down on there. I had a couple pretty good articles on that. But yeah, that's me. So, How about you, Ian? Um, I guess follow me on Twitter uh, at Ian is sober. That's Y-E-N is sober. Uh, I have a drunk Twitter on the side, but that's more of an artifact by now. Um <laughs> But if you want to follow uh, me for my art and other writing that I do here and there, uh, you can follow me on Tumblr at tggp.tumblr.com. All right, cool. And as always, um, oh, hey, there's news on this front. If you are someone who listens to the show, who has been listening to the show all along on deadshirt.net, good news for you. We're on iTunes now, and you don't have to keep your browser open and try to keep your phone from falling asleep to listen to it remotely. You can search for us on iTunes. Super's on screen. You can search for that and subscribe to us. And if you are so inclined, you can leave us a review. Um, Reviews are important for podcasts because the higher ranked we are and the more reviews we get, the easier it is to find us in certain categories. So uh, if uh, if you like the show, please leave us a nice review. If you hate the show, stop listening to it <laughs> and say nothing and drink to forget so um man this movie this movie was a delight i end up saying that at the end of every episode was this was a delight and that's becoming my catchphrase i guess and uh, i want to thank both of you it's fellas a pretty good one <laughs> i want to thank both of you guys for uh for joining me here on the show um we'll be sure to have both of you back in the future if you if you oh thank you if you would thank you for having that. us 
And, yeah, yeah, uh, no, I had a great time. And thank you, listeners, for uh, for enjoying this episode of uh, Supers on Screen, whether it be in our weird browser format or on an actually easily digestible iTunes downloadable slash streamable form. Uh, don't forget to leave those reviews or stop listening if you don't like it. Uh, no one's got a gun to your head. <laughs> you don't have to listen to this show, but you should, and you should tell all your friends to listen to it, unless you hate it. Go away. Thank you and good night. <laughs> Supers on Screen is produced by Dylan Roth for Deadshirt.net. Visit Deadshirt.net for reviews and commentary on comics, movies, TV, music, and more. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Deadshirt.net. That's D-E-A-D-S-H-I-R-T-D-O-T-N-E-T. You can find me, Dylan Roth, on Twitter at D-Y-L-A-N-R-O-T-H. Our theme music is Become the Night by Big Damn Heroes. Deadshirt.net. Consider everything.